A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 128, The Narcissist. The reason historians love the chronicler Jean de Froissart is that he does tell a good story. One of the reasons historians hate Froissart is that he does tell a good story. So the lad sometimes just gets it wrong in terms of the sequence of events. But what he does do is give the kind of colour which is very rare. As an illustration, I thought I'd read a bit out of Froissart to show that Richard and his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, just didn't see eye to eye. So, according to Foissart, Thomas, Duke of Gloucester, had a household knight in whom he particularly confided, a knight called John Lackinghay, a knight who sounds as though somewhere in his ancestry was a man with limited farming skills. Anyway, Foissart records something of a rant from Gloucester. Here are a few extracts. Those frivolous French are so over-brimming with conceit they have never brought any of their enterprises to a successful conclusion. That was proved often enough in the wars of my royal father and my brother the Prince of Wales. They could never capture a castle or win a battle against us. I don't know why we had this truce with them, for if we started this war again we should make hay of them. They used fraud and trickery to steal back the domains in Aquitaine. I pointed that out several times at various meetings we had outside Calais. But they answered me with such smooth and flowery language that somehow they always managed to fall on their feet. Nice touch about making hay of them, don't you think? Hopefully his mate John Lackinghay wasn't too hurt. Anyway, Gloucester could and did go on. Basically, he was a denier. He couldn't accept that in the end his father, the glorious Edward, had ended up on the losing side, and he hated the French for their smooth ways. Whereas Richard absolutely loved the French for their smooth ways, and enjoyed smoothing with the best of them. Through the truth at Ardre, the marriage to Isabel, the daughter of Charles VI, Richard had clearly signalled that from now on, the French were friends, not food. Worse, he'd actually agreed to a war against the English friends, the Milanese, in alliance with the French. Now this was unthinkable. And although the French might be giving the English a good hiding at the moment, there were plenty of people prepared to forget all of that and say that if only we were at war, honour and power and glory would inevitably follow. Just to illustrate the point, Gloucester growled on. The slackness of our leader and king, who has just allied himself by marriage with his principal enemy, that's hardly a sign he wants to fight him. No, he's too fat in the arse, and only interested in eating and drinking. That's no life for a fighting man, who's supposed to be hard and lean and bent on glory. There is no evidence that Richard had a fat arse, incidentally, but what's clear 
It's that Gloucester is irascible and warlike, while Richard was more interested in the fancy ways of the French. To misuse Gilbert and Sullivan, Richard appeared to face temptations to belong to other nations, possibly even considering using that friendship against his own people if they cut up rough. There's a specific request where Richard asks Charles if he will help him if his magnates give him trouble. Anyway, Gloucester continued to rant. Things can't go on like this. He's raising such heavy taxes from the merchants that they're growing restless. And no one knows where the money goes. I know he spends plenty, but it's on silly and futile things. And his people have to pay the bill. Gloucester, it has to be said, had a point. In the last couple of years, Richard's expenditure on his household and the extravagance of his display had increased wildly. Richard was one for display, and to an extent, people expected that in a king. It came with the territory of kingness, who wanted a king that looked like a ditch digger. But there was a limit. To those of you who don't know the story of Richard II and where it ends, let me just say that, in the words of Nat King Cole, there was trouble ahead, and it involved neither moonlight nor music, neither love nor romance. The big question is why Richard behaved the way he did. After all, he's held it together just fine for the last eight years. Yes, he's not a model of kingship, he's a bit odd and a bit up himself, but, you know, not a disaster. The question historians have asked themselves is whether or not Richard actually goes potty, clinically speaking. Opinion seems to come down on Richard being a narcissist. Ah, I hear you say, sagely. But what in practice does that mean? What it means is that Richard was convinced of his own perfection, but at the same time deeply insecure and exceptionally self-conscious and self-centred. So his own identity, ideas rivalries and feelings formed the entire limit of his world. Combined with a lack of self-confidence, it meant that Richard was hideously sensitive. He might on occasion be unreasonably angry and vengeful, or equally he might be unreasonably or unjustifiably generous. But why now, I hear you ask? After all, if he was as nutty as the proverbial fruitcake, why did he leave it until 1397 to hit the nuttiness button? The answer may be that his psychological environment began to change. After 1389, he had seen a stable group of men around him, away from the wilder elements that had encouraged him in 1389. And he'd had the solid and reliable support of John of Gaunt. But in 1397, the political consensus that had surrounded him began to crack. For the first time in a decade, he felt exposed and vulnerable and subjected to outspoken criticism. He was to prove that he didn't have the mental tools and strength of mind to cope with that criticism. So these criticisms were neatly described in the first Parliament of the Year in January 1397 and in a petition presented to Richard. This petition made four complaints. One, sheriffs were not men of substance that the law said they would be and were often kept in office beyond their yearly term. Just like an old friend, this one, isn't it? Remember how much we used to talk about sheriffs? Ah, happy days. They're still important, but not quite the force they used to be. 
Number two. The Scottish marches are a mess. Come on, there are oatcakes, shortbread biscuits and Edinburgh woollen mill stickers lying all over northern England left over from the hideous Scottish raids. Number three. Please, please stop this livery and maintenance thing. The magnates have badges distributed to all and sundry. Everyone's getting into fights or flouting the law of the land with impunity. Number four. The cost of your royal household, with respect, is an outrage. There is a multitude of bishops and ladies being maintained by a runaway budget and we don't want to pay any more. Now, to the surprise of the Commons, they got a response to this from the boss and a line-by-line response at that. And actually, the response to the first three was all perfectly reasonable and measured and so on. But on the fourth, well, raw nerve or what? Richard let rip. It is contrary to my regality, he squawked, that subjects should presume to govern the royal household or criticise persons of quality. The Commons apparently were offending against, quote, His Majesty and the liberty which he had inherited against his ancestors. Oops, sorry, just saying. Richard demanded to know who it was that had had the nerve to submit such a petition because in his view he was a traitor. The Commons were, of course, shocked at the severity of this response. And at this point, I need to introduce you to one John Boosie, who will play a part in our drama for a while. He's a rather unattractive bloke, bit of a wheeler-dealer type. He's the Speaker of the House. Now, we tend, or at least I tend, to think about speakers as being the honest representative of the House, incorruptible, in line with William Lentor's line to Charles I, May it please your majesty, I have neither eyes to see nor tongue to speak in this place, but as the house is pleased to direct me, whose servant I am. Though actually, I think Lentor wasn't making a constitutional point at the time, simply trying to save his own ass. but whatever. Well, John Boosie didn't take that view. His bread was firmly and conclusively buttered on the royal side. He was a knight who knew that to get ahead he needed marriage and lucrative appointments. So he was sheriff and steward of the Duchy of Lancaster, but his coup was to help Maud Neville get a pardon for having murdered her husband with her lover, and then marry him. As a result, he got the lands she held, and then when she died he married another heiress. The Earl of Arundel was to describe him as, quote, always false. Boosie was pretty clear that his job was to use his eyes and tongue to manipulate the commons into doing what the king wanted. On this occasion, it meant that a man called Thomas Hoxie was offered up like a lamb to the slaughter for submitting the petition, with a suitably grovelling note to accompany him to the king. Now, as it happened, Thomas Hoxie survived the experience because he was a clerk and went on to do very nicely for himself. Thank you, was pretty well endowed in the heel department, before dying in 1425 and being buried at York. But much as he'd like to hide it, criticism of Richard was growing, and Richard did not take criticism well. In the modern workplace, I can't see Richard having a problem with blame culture, which I'd imagine he'd think perfectly reasonable as long as he wasn't at the end of it. Hoxie did represent a large body of discontent, and Gloucester and his anti-French lobby got louder and more discontented with the return of the garrison from Brest, 
which returned in a horribly sorry state after being surrendered in June 1396. And although Richard was forced to abandon his plan for the war with the French against Milan, the damage had been done. So Richard was in something of a fug of fear, pain and panic. And when your king is in such a fug, breaking for cover is not a bad idea. But Uncle Gloucester was not a breaking-for-cover kind of guy. And as he sat at his castle of Pleshy in Essex, he continued to moan about Richard's fat ass, amongst other things, and the news filtered back to Richard. So in what happens next, we can see a few elements. Since I am in a kind of list mood, let's go for numbers. Number one. Richard is hurt and upset at the naughty people saying naughty things about him. Number two. Richard is probably mentally unstable. Number three, Richard hates Gloucester and the people who humiliated him nine years ago and has always wanted to rub their noses in it. Number four, how dare they say he is a fat ass? On the 5th of July 1387, Henry Brolingbroke was at Westminster with the King and it's probable that Richard told him of his plans. Some historians have seen this as a sign of Richard's favour but it was probably a pretty cold kind of favour. Richard had enough good sense to know that he needed some supporters, or at least he needed some people to sit on their hands. Richard then invited his three bugbears, Gloucester, Arundel and Warwick, the three senior appellants, for a nice supper on the 9th of the 10th of July. Only Warwick turned up as it happens, Gloucester pleading illness, and Arundel saying he couldn't be asked was doing his hair that night and was staying put at his castle at Reigate, thank you very much. This was, in fact, par for the course for royal invitations to this pair and a symptom of how the relationship had broken down. Anyway, Warwick had a nice supper until the pud, when Richard shouted at him over his jam roly-poly and had him arrested before the wafer-thin after-dinner mince, which cannot have been good for the digestion. Now Richard needed to go after the party poopers, and so in the dead of night the orders went out to assemble his men-at-arms of the royal household at Westminster. Richard apparently set out for Pleshy Castle and arrived there before dawn. Now, a hamadoots about that bit of the story, since that's 36 miles in one night, which is pretty good going, but maybe, or maybe it took more than one day or night, whatever. Chris Given Wilson claims all this happened at Westminster. But anyway, according to this version of events, Gloucester was dragged from his bed by the banging of his castle gate. Mrs Gloucester, Eleanor Bohoon, the one who tried to persuade Sister Mary to join a nunnery so she could keep all her money, she at once saw something wasn't right, and turned on the waterworks to persuade Richard not to be nasty to hubby. He hadn't meant anything by it, and anyway, she thought Richard's ass was quite dinky, especially in purple. Richard was having none of it. When Eleanor begged for mercy, he replied icily that he would show Gloucester as much mercy as Gloucester had shown Simon Burley. There can be little doubt with this statement that Richard had never forgiven, never forgotten, and that Gloucester was toast. A quick word before we proceed about Mowbray, Earl of Nottingham, former appellant. He was back in the King's favour by all accounts, and really having a nice time of it, as far as we could see. Through service to the king, he had acquired vast tracts of land. He had played around like any young, rich lord, such as joining the joust at St. Anglevere, being awarded the honours at the tournament at Smithfield in 1397, 
going to Ireland with Richard, becoming his diplomatic envoy in France and Germany. He was now, amongst other things, captain of Calais. And so on the 11th of July, Richard turned up with Gloucester, handed Gloucester over and told Mowbray to take him to Calais. Give him a good looking after, Mowbray. Don't arm a hair on his head, said Richard, closing one eye and tapping his nose ostentatiously on one side. Which brings us to the Arundels. Now, I may have explained this before, but let's just be clear, there are two Arundels. There's Richard, the Earl of Arundel, who is the grumpy hair washer and appellant. And there's his younger brother, Thomas Arundel, who is now Archbishop of Canterbury. So Thomas Arundel went to his brother Richard and persuaded him to give himself up, which was a good example of why you should never listen to your brother. Since Richard was arrested and sent to jail on the Isle of Wight, and let me tell you, there's worse to come. So Richard had hooked his fish, and at the same time cleverly kept his enemies divided. Now he had to bring the Barracuda ashore. At Nottingham in August, charges were formally laid against the three appellants. Meanwhile, everyone was nervous, no one could relax, so Richard sent a note out to the sheriff. So Richard sent a note out to the sheriffs to say that they had been arrested for new offences and everyone connected with the events of 1388 could chill, which was clearly a big fat fib. Writs were sent out for Parliament to gather at Westminster on St Lambert's Day, 17th of September. At the same time, he ordered Gaunt and Bolingbroke to bring him an army and sent orders to the Sheriff of Chester to find him 2,000 archers as quickly as he could. The word we're looking for, ladies and gents, is pother, as in, everyone's in one. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Westminster Hall was being rebuilt at the time, so Parliament met in a temporary open-sided wooden structure in the palace yard. Contrary to the usual practice, the lords brought their retinues with them, and so Westminster was stuffed with armed men. Meanwhile, Richard positioned no less than 300 archers around the open-sided wooden hall, which would have been worrying, I imagine, to anyone with a guilty conscience, or indeed without a guilty conscience. As per normal, the Parliament was opened by a sermon, this time from the Chancellor, who was also Bishop Stafford of Exeter, and he took his text from Ezekiel 37, verse 22. I will make them a single nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and they shall have one king. Just to make sure no one missed the point, Stafford spelled it out. For a realm to be well governed, he said, three things needed to happen, and I feel a list coming on. Number one. The king should be powerful enough to govern. Number two, his laws should be properly executed. Number three, his subjects should be duly obedient. Stafford went on to explain that it was the duty of the king's subjects to make sure the king had full control of his regalities and rights, and they had to report any attacks on him by any other subject. 
Then Richard dropped his first bombshell. To make sure everything was clear, he was going to issue a general pardon to anyone that wanted it, just in case they were in possession of a guilty conscience. But he was going to exclude 50 people from said pardon, and, by the way, he wasn't going to tell anyone who those 50 people were. Nice touch. So now he had a parliament of people in a panic, wondering if they were or were not on the list. By the following September, by the way, over 500 guilty consciences had unprompted come forward, asked for and gained a pardon, and paid a handsome fee into the bargain. You might like to try this one at home. The following day, John Boosie was elected Speaker, so Richard had his manager in place. The first target was Thomas Arundel, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor at the time of the Merciless Parliament in 1388. Boosie was clear to his master, Arundel is far too clever by half. He's got a tongue on him, that lad. Don't give him any leeway or any oxygen. Now, we're going to have the odd reading and reenactment, gentle listeners, where I can, by the way, which is mainly, I've used the actual recorded words of the chronicler, but I've had to make some bits up just to link them all together. So, we're in Parliament. Let's start off with John Boosie. My Lord King, since we are bound by your command to tell your Royal Highness, who undermined your power and transgressed against your regality, we tell you that Thomas, Duke of Gloucester and Richard, Earl of Arundel in the tenth year of your reign, with the assistance of Thomas Arundel, then Chancellor of England, and now Archbishop of Canterbury, compelled you to concede a commission touching the government and state of your kingdom, which was to the prejudice of your regality and majesty, whereby they did you great injury. I think we can all spot a plant when we see one, can we not? So now we get a bit of theatre. Firstly, Richard ordered the offending act from the merciless Parliament of 1388 read out. And then, in a fury, Richard declared... It is my pleasure that this act is against the rightful powers of the Crown. It is hereby revoked, repealed, and perpetually annulled, and so is every act passed as a consequence of that great evil. Speaker, now I ask you to read out the pardons of those who rose in revolt against the crown. The pardons were duly read out, and the pardons were duly all revoked. Now that is nuclear, no thermonuclear. I mean, if royal pardons can be revoked, then what's the point of a royal pardon? Thomas Arundel rose to speak. Richard silenced him, telling him he could speak tomorrow and the day session was over. The tension was truly oppressive. Barely a toe was left uncurled, barely a buttock left unclenched. The Cheshire archers were nervous. A cry went up at one stage that the king had been attacked. Arrows were loosed before the king appeared to put the rumour to rest. On the Wednesday, Richard appeared and explained that everyone was asking him who the fifty men were but he wasn't going to say, because if he did, they might run away. In fact, there was no list of fifty. But the thought that there might be was loosening the bowels of Richard's enemies, and that was the way Richard wanted his enemies' bowels to be. Loose. Super loose. The looser the better. And there can have been few bowels more loose than those of Henry the Bolingbroke and Thomas Mowbray. After all, their pardons had been revoked as well as the senior appellants, and they only had the king's rather unreliable word for it, 
they were not due to go the same way. On the Thursday, the Archbishop of Canterbury returned to Parliament to defend himself against accusations of treason. But when he appeared, Richard told him again to remove himself, and his trial took place without him. Now, everyone there would have had no hesitation in realising that the Archbishop was clearly no traitor. After all, he'd served Richard loyally as Chancellor for seven years. Everyone concerned had even less hesitation in standing before the King in Parliament and announcing bravely and with great personal integrity that the Archbishop was clearly a traitor who should be immediately punished, nasty man. A few days later, Richard announced that he was stripped of all his possessions and banished. But in terms of theatre, we've only just begun. On Friday the 21st of September, the Parliament sat in its makeshift hall, waiting with nervous anticipation. In walked the King. Following him were eight men, gorgeously arrayed in red silk robes, banded with white silk, powdered with letters of gold. These men were among the most powerful magnates of the land, the King's supporters, John Holland, the Earls of Kent, Somerset and Salisbury, Thomas Mowbray, Constable of Calais and Earl of Nottingham, the Lords Dispenser and Scroope. These were the counter-appellants. In loud voices they appealed six men of treason, a very conscious and public copying of the merciless Parliament. The six men appealed for treason were Gloucester, Arundel and Warwick, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who'd already been dealt with, a chap called Lord Cobham, and Thomas Mortimer, the guy who had killed poor old Molyneux in the river at Radcot Bridge. The appeals having been made, Arundel and Warwick were to be tried immediately, and writs were sent to Calais to bring Gloucester. Richard Fitzalan, the Earl of Arundel, was dragged from the tower in front of the terrified Parliament, which was now a trial court. A horrified John of Gaunt was formerly the accuser in his role of steward of England, staunchly sticking by his principle to support the king at all costs. Boosie was close by as speaker. Arundel stood in front of them all, tall, bitter, contemptuous, the accused. I should do a dramatis personae so that you know who's talking. I have been pardoned twice by the king. That, as you probably guessed, is the Earl of Arundel, played by Izzy. And then this is Georgia playing the greatest magnate of all, John of Gaunt, who is presiding over the trial. Those pardons have been revoked, traitor! Answer the appeal. Now that is Henry playing King Richard II. I have the honour of being John Boosie. (laughs) For what reasons am I standing here accused? I have been pardoned twice by the king. Those pardons have been revoked, traitor! Truly you lie. I was never a traitor. Then why did you seek a pardon? To silence the tongues of my enemies, of whom you are one, and to be sure, when it comes to treason, you are in the greater need of a pardon than I am. Answer the appeal. I see it clearly now. All of you who accuse me of treason, you are all liars. Never was I traitor. I still claim the full benefit of my pardon, which you, within these last six years, when you were full of age, granted to me of your own volition. 
I granted it provided it were not to my prejudice. Therefore the grant is worthless. In truth, I was as ignorant about that pardon as you were, and you were abroad at the time, until it was willingly granted to me by the king. That pardon has already been revoked by the king, the lords and us, the faithful commons. At this point, Arundel looked round at the commons assembled in the hall. He might have noticed that there were very few familiar faces. The composition of the commons at this time around was of an almost entirely new men. Where are those faithful commons? If the faithful commons were here, they would be without doubt on my side. They would be without doubt on my side. <laughs> Trying to help me from falling into your clutches. They, I know, are grieving greatly for me, while you, I know, have always been false. Look, Lord King, how this traitor is trying to stir up dissent between us and the commons who stayed at home. Liars! All of you, I am no traitor! Oh, no. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> Did you not say to me at Huntington, when we first gathered in revolt, that before doing anything else it would be better to seize the king? Now this was Henry Bolingbroke putting his former friend right in it, played by Jemima. You, Henry, Earl of Derby, you lie in your teeth. I never said anything to you or to anyone else about my Lord King, except what was to his welfare and honour. Did you not say to me at the time of your Parliament, in the bath behind the White Hall, that Simon Burley was worthy of death? And I replied that I neither knew nor could discover any reason for his death. And even the Queen, my wife, and I interceded tirelessly on his behalf, yet you and your accomplices, ignoring our pleas, treacherously putting him to death. Uh, uh. Pass judgment on him. Lord Arundel, you are found a foul traitor. You will be drawn to the gallows at Teburn, here to be hanged by the neck, cut down before dead, beheaded and quartered. In consideration of your rank, though you, though you scarce deserve it, Lord Arundel, the sentence is commuted to beheading only. Arundel had put up a good fight, maybe even come off better in the verbal exchange, but it had done him no good. But he died as he had lived, full of arrogance, self-assurance and courage. He walked through the street to his execution. So Richard had his victim. Now Thomas of Mortar was in Ireland. Gloucester had been summoned. So next up was Warwick. Warwick employed the finest legal minds and prepared a fiendishly clever defence. In the words of Adam of Usk, Warwick behaved like a wretched old woman, wailing and weeping and whining that he'd done all, traitor that he was. But this clever, subtle and persuasive argument pretty much did the trick. Warwick's life was spared, although he was banished to the Isle of Man and lost all his lands and kit. Which left the big one. The blood royal, Thomas of Woodstock, Duke of Gloucester, youngest son of Edward of Golden Memory. Richard called for Mowbray, captain of Calais, and asked him to deliver Gloucester as promised. So let me take you across the narrow seas to Calais. There, down a side street is the house of a wealthy man, but to the keen observer it would seem to be a reclusive wealthy man, a man who didn't like company. There were guards on the door with really poor manners and interpersonal skills. Inside was a grand man, 
fallen on hard times. Then in walked a hard-faced thug who announced himself as John Hall. By his side was a chaplain. Hall left the grand man, who happens to be Gloucester, alone with the chaplain, then returned and dragged him to a side chamber. Maybe Gloucester kicked and screamed, maybe he went quietly, who knows. But Hall, with his accomplices, made him lie down on a bed, covered him with a feather mattress and, ignoring his cries and pleas, smothered him to death. So, back to Parliament. Mowbray had, in fact, probably resisted killing Gloucester as long as possible and was deeply, deeply uncomfortable with the whole affair. But for Richard, there was simply no way he could afford putting Gloucester on trial. John of Gaunt might swallow the judicial murder of Arundel, it would have been entirely another matter to have allowed his royal brother to go the same way. So Mowbray's response was that unfortunately Gloucester had been a little parky when he'd arrived, had gone badly downhill and sadly had croaked. So sorry. Richard was finally cleansed. The canker that had eaten at his soul was spread with balm, his enemies laid low, humiliated, harnessed, emasculated or killed. So now he could afford to be generous. For Richard to succeed, it had been essential that two men sit on their hands and betray their former friends. Bolingbroke and Mowbray were richly rewarded. Bolingbroke became Duke of Hereford. Mowbray became Duke of Norfolk. Now these weren't just titles. They feasted on the dead body of Arundel's lands. John Boosey also profited hugely, and maybe they thought the wages of sin sometimes turned out to be better than death. Along with Bolingbroke and Mowbray were so many other promotions and ennoblements that the chronicler Walsingham referred contemptuously to the new lot as the Duchetti. Well, there you go. It's difficult, in fact, to blame Richard in some ways any more than the appellants were to blame for their brutality ten years before. Violence begets violence, and the wages of sin were, in fact, to turn out to be death in the end. For some at least, but I'm not saying who. Next week, Richard looks to enjoy free reign of his majesty and might. I have some donators to thank. Gerald, Gareth, Cathy, Amy, Yamo, Samantha, Mark and Bernd. Thank you very much indeed. And absolutely finally, thanks to everyone for listening, for all your comments on the History of England's website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck everyone and have a great week.